Andrew Carnegie, uh, didn't live too far from here, I don't believe, uh, very wealthy uh, man, became one of the world's wealthiest man. His business, forerunner to U.S. Steel, became one of the world's most, most productive businesses. He, he did some introspection, saw what money was actually doing to him. He, he wrote a self-memo. He says this, he says, man must have an idol. The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol more debasing than the worship of money. Whatever I engage in, I must push inordinately. Therefore, should I be careful to choose the life which will be the most elevating in character. To continue much longer overwhelmed by the business cares and with most of my thoughts wholly upon the way to make money in the shortest time must degrade me beyond hope of permanent recovery. I will resign business at 35. He wrote this when he was 33. But during the ensuing two years, I wish to spend the afternoons in securing instruction and in reading systematically. Andrew Carnegie knew what money could do. He saw what it was beginning to do to him. He didn't like it. He said, two more years in business and I'm out of here. But he didn't stop after two years, did he? He kept going. And some of the things that he was afraid money would do to him did, in fact, do to him. One of his biographer wrote this. He said, although Carnegie built 2,059 libraries, a steelworker speaking for many told an interviewer, we didn't want him to build a library for us. We would rather have had higher wages. At that time, steelworkers worked 12-hour shifts on floors so hot they had to nail wooden platforms under their shoes. Every two weeks, they toiled an inhumane 24-hour shift, and then they got their sole day off. The best housing they could afford was crowded and filthy. Most died in their 40s or earlier from accidents or disease. Money has that, that danger. And we might say, well... That's just one guy. Well, CNN wrote an article uh, not too long back, September of this year, about John Whitaker. Now, not John Avery Whitaker of Odyssey fame, but a guy by the name of John Whitaker. He was from West Virginia. He won the 2002 Powerball jackpot, $314 million. And in the initial interview, he said, no, this is not going to change me. Everyone says that, right? Four years later... He was a broken man. His beloved granddaughter had died from a drug OD. Uh, his divorce was going to be finalized the next year. His daughter would die the following year. He was in trouble with the law. He said in a lawsuit in court uh, that he had no more money. He had lost it all. Uh, matter of fact, CNN says that 70% of those who win the lotto lose it all within a few years. It's amazing to me, isn't it? He said, well, these guys obviously are people who don't know how to handle wealth. Uh, see, if you know how to handle wealth, you got a different, you're singing a different story. Well, W.H. Vanderbilt, from Vanderbilt fame, he said, the care of 200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. John D. Rockefeller, who knew a little bit about money, he said, I have made millions, but they have brought me no happiness. Henry Ford said, I was happier when doing a mechanic's job. You know, it's interesting. The folk who have got it all stop and say, 
This is not it. Money, money scars. Money hurts. Money creates pain in many instances. But yet, we, we kind of know this in our head. And yet, there's something about it that is pulling us there. We're fighting for it and struggling for it. We would like to try managing it. Maybe other people can fail, but let me give it a shot, right? Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 6, He says, No one can serve two masters. Either you're going to love the one and hate the other, or you're going to be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. This is interesting. This is Jesus, who I think he probably knows a little bit more than us, God of the universe, says, you cannot serve God in money. God and money coexist. It's very difficult. The throne room of your, your heart, there's, there's one throne. There's not two. And it's going to be who's on it. There's this battle for our hearts. It's Jesus, it's money, it's Jesus, it's money. What we wrestle this through. And so we're doing this series, we're at the end of it today, um, Money Talks. And so, you know, if it's been a little intense, don't worry, this last one, okay, then we'll be all done. By the way, if you're visiting, this is nothing for you, just kind of look and see what Christians are supposed to be doing. Um, but the first week, remember, we talked about Zacchaeus. And what we said was generosity was the surest sign of transformation. Not your doctrinal statement is the surest sign of transformation, or the size of your Bible was the surest sign of transformation, or even church attendance was the surest sign of transformation, but generosity. And when Zacchaeus took the dollar, wasn't really a dollar, the shekel, off the throne of his heart, and he put God there, put Jesus there, generosity just flowed. It just does from people who have Jesus on the throne of their, their heart. Second week, we started, we looked at, okay, well, how much are we supposed to be given? And, and New Testament Christians think that the guys in the Old Testament, you know, they had to give 10%. And that was just awful. But see, New Testament's a little bit different. See, we don't have to offer sacrifices anymore. And we don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore. And we don't have to give 10% anymore. It's all done. Average gift of a United States Christian churchgoer. Last study I read, 1.8%. Isn't that amazing? Most affluent nation in the world, we give 1.8% away to help other people. When, we, when we're supposed to be following Jesus who gave, gave it all. Fascinating. Today what we want to do is we want to look at uh, the greatest uh, enemy of generosity. Uh, I believe the greatest enemy of generosity is stewardship. That's the deal. It's disguised. Stewardship. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to turn around a little bit this morning I hope you you got your Bible, you're ready for that. We won't do major sword drills. We're really just going to three places. But, but if you can turn and see it in your Bible. And you did nothing but stare at the screen. For all you know, I was in the back room. I just faked all those verses. Their Bible really doesn't say this. You don't need to get your Bible see it in the Bible. All right, enough of that. Let's go on. Matthew chapter 6, beginning verse 19. 619, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moth and rust or vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust, or moth and vermin, word can be translated different ways, do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And look at that last line for a minute, where your treasure is. Now, the way we work often is where our heart is, our treasure is there also, right? You get this eye for a new car, 
and you check it out, you see other people driving it, you test drive it yourself, you like the way it looks, you like the way it drives, you like the way it smells, it's a pretty cool car. And after all, if your heart is there, you know, your, 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 your wallet's not too far behind, your treasure's going to follow. You get the, your eye on the new gadget that Apple came up with. It's like, man, that's a cool thing. And you see other people have that thing, but you don't have that thing. So suddenly you're, you're deprived because you're not able to... And so you need this, this thing, whatever it is, is bigger and shinier and faster. And, and so once your heart is there, your, your treasure will follow. Well, Jesus says something really, really, really cool. He says the reciprocal is also true. Where your treasure is, your heart will follow. Now, this is why this is so cool. Have you ever wished you could be more godly? Have you ever really, really wished, maybe even prayed, that you could be more like Christ? That your thoughts could be more heavenly? That you, your life could be more in line with, with His? you ever hope that? Well, you know what? It can be. But this is, is, is the, the way. We can lead our hearts by giving our treasure. Where your treasure is, your heart will follow. We can lead our hearts into deeper intimacy with God. You can't get to the deeper intimacy with God, though, if you're hanging on to the money thing. If the money thing is ruling the heart, if the battle is really kind of leaning towards the money, you're not going into a deeper relationship with God. Now, the cool, the, say the cool, the goofy thing is we can manipulate our image. We can get the bigger Bible. We can come to church more often. We can make people think and we can really kind of pretend. But reality is, we might be more in a church, but reality is where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. That's the way to intimacy with him. Now, one of the things he says here is really interesting when he says, do not store for yourselves treasures on earth. Translation, when, very key way to, to translate this, I believe the proper way to translate this, is him saying, stop laying up for yourselves treasures on earth. Stop it now! It's very, very emphatic. It's a command to stop doing this, this present, and stop doing it. The assumption is we're doing it. He knows us, now we're doing it. And he says, stop it! You are laying up for yourselves treasures on earth, stop it now! And, and, and you, you, you look at this and you go, well, wait, 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 wait. This looks like he's saying don't save. I thought we were supposed to save. I thought that's a biblical thing. Saving might be a wise thing to do. But Jesus says, stop doing What is that all about? We want to take just a couple minutes to look at the, the biggest store upper in the New Testament and see if we can derive some principles for our lives of how we balance this tension. It's a tension. Luke chapter 12. Look at, with me at Luke chapter 12. Just a, just a, it's a parable of the rich fool. Luke chapter 12. I'm not seeing a whole lot of pages turning, but I'm just, maybe we got all of our Bibles on our Kindles or something. That's cool. And then we're doing that. That's all right. That's all right. Uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Now, context here, Jesus is in the middle of a sermon. He's preaching in the middle of a sermon. This is the Son of God telling people how they can have a relationship with God. This is a pretty big thing. He's preaching. It's a very, very significant sermon that Jesus is preaching like he's, he, never, he ever wasted time somewhere else. He's saying this is an incredible sermon. And this guy interrupts him. 
and says, oh, yeah, yeah, can, that's interesting. So can you put us, listen, uh, more important issue right here. And he doesn't even ask. You notice he doesn't ask Jesus. He commands Jesus. Jesus, I want you to tell my brother that he needs to share the dollars with me. Now, he doesn't even say, Jesus, Jesus, uh, I'm going to give you all the facts here and then help me think straight about this because this is just really rattling my cage and I don't understand what to do with this one. Can you just help me think about this? He doesn't go down that road. He doesn't want Jesus' insight. He wants Jesus' power, doesn't he? Jesus, this is what you need to do. Tell my brother to more money this way. Now, maybe, he doesn't say, so we're projecting this one, but maybe the guy had a case. Maybe he was really being ripped off. I mean, he was just really the victim of injustice. You've ever been down that road? Maybe this is true for him. And, 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 it, and it's interesting how Jesus responds. When Jesus, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you. Basically, Jesus says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Solving issues of money, that's, that's not in my job description. I came that you might have life and have it abundantly, not that you might have money and have it abundantly. So, you know, I'm just not touching this one. Now, for, for us, this is a side point, but I think sometimes aren't we the same way? Jesus trying to, to share with us incredible things of his word, spiritual, powerful things, but we just don't have time for those things. We interrupt and say, you know what, Jesus, that's fine, yeah, good, okay, yeah, all right. This is what you need to do. And we start railing off our prayers. You need to fix this, you need to get me that, you need to take care of this, you need to help me with that. Go for it. Now you, know, now, now you know. I know before you probably were ignorant, but now you know what you need to do. Okay, go for it. And meanwhile, Jesus is sharing with us. And he's saying, wait a minute, hang on here. Thank you for praying to me, asking me for those things, but you just need to know that that's not why I came. And I'm not touching that stuff. We got other things that are a little bit more significant than that right now. I'm, I'm, that's, not, that's not me. That's not my job description. He says... Uh, and he told him a parable. Oh, by the way, before we give the parable, I know it's 15, he says, watch out. Very, very, very neat uh, deal. He says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. Jesus gives us a principle here and then a warning. The principle is that a man's life doesn't consist in the, his, his possessions. And that is so countercultural, isn't it? He who dies with the most toys wins. We all know that. And uh, Jesus says, no, your, your life is not defined by, you know, the, the emblem on your shirt or by the emblem on your shoes or by the emblem on the car or the neighborhood you live or by where you work or the size of your office. Or, it's, not to, to, it's not by those things. But our world says, yeah, you know, it is. That your life consists of those things. Jesus says, no, no, no. And then he gives a warning. He says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. When I was training, teaching my daughter Lauren to drive, fascinating. Any of you dads still alive who taught your children to drive? <laughs> Got a lot more gray hair now, don't you? No hair at all. I've, I've seen some of you. When, when you, I was teaching her to drive, she was a good driver, but you know, you're constantly, whoa, 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 stop, whoa, and you're going for the brake and it's not there. And, watch out, watch out, watch out, watch out. And uh, there'd be times where she didn't know, obviously, I'm training her, what the dangers were. And so I'm like, watch out, watch out, watch out, watch out. Uh, but she knew enough to realize that dad may understand a little bit more about driving than I do. And he may recognize a danger here that I don't recognize. And if he's saying, watch out, 
And she would let off the gas and be looking around and trying to see what the issue was, what the danger was. When you're with somebody who knows what they're talking about, or at least in my case thought, thought they did, they know what they're talking about, and they're telling you, they're trying to train you, and they're saying, watch out. It's probably wise to listen. Jesus here is trying to train us for life. And he says, when you talk about money, watch out, watch out, watch out. We don't want to blow through the warning and just keep on going. We want to, we want to take the foot off the gas a little bit and say, oh, okay, hang on, wait a minute. I hear you very upset, Jesus, because he's very emphatic here. And this is really a big thing for you, got it. But I'm not so sure I see it. Will you help me see it? He says, all right, he's going to. He told him a parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Poor guy didn't have enough room to to hang out all of his, his loot. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I'll store all of my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, self, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat and drink and be merry. Now, this is a fascinating, uh, fascinating parable. We recognize that this guy, no, he doesn't say that, so we're projecting, but he earned his money in a righteous way. He was a farmer. Now, uh, and you guys grew up on the farm, you grew up on the farm. Now, if you grew up on the farm, was life easy to make a living there? Or not? I'm, I, I have never, didn't grow, I grew up in the city, but I've been to visit my grandma's farm and she would get up at this ungodly hour I mean the sun's not even up yet and she's out and she's banging around in the kitchen and, and working with all kinds of stuff till nightfall and just going on and on when do you stop and play well you don't stop and play because it's hard work this guy made his money working hard he rolled up his sleeves he worked hard over the, the years he wasn't pushing drugs he wasn't selling guns he wasn't, didn't have a casino on his land he was working hard he did it right and notice something else about him. He was wealthy. Nothing wrong in being wealthy, right? David and Boaz and Philemon, lots of people in the Bible, good people in the Bible, wealthy people. And he saved. Nothing wrong. What's anything wrong with saving? He saved. This is a good thing, right? Now think about this guy. He worked hard. One could even say that God blessed him from his hard work because there is a blessing that follows hard work. And then he was trying to save. He didn't spend it on on luxurious living. It doesn't say that anyway. He doesn't spend it on rising up consumer debt or anything else. He was trying to save his money. This guy was a good American. He worked hard. He saved his money. What's wrong with that? Well, verse 20. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then, who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. Now, you've got to stop again and say, well, I don't understand. This guy did it right, and he's trying to save. He's doing it right. He's not being a, a hurting society. He's, he's, what, what's the problem here? And I think that is the goal of the parable. This guy was doing it right, and he didn't know that there was a problem. But there was a huge problem. And so you stop and you look at it and you go, well, what was the issue? Well, look close. The issue was not barns, right? The issue was bigger barns, wasn't it? 
The issue was not saving. This is, this, there is a tension in Scripture. This tension is huge. Yes, Proverbs 6. Go to the ant, you sluggard, and consider ways and be wise. Proverbs 30 says, the ants are, are we people, we creatures. But, but, but they recognize that winter's coming, so summertime, they save, so they'll be prepared. Proverbs is all over the place. You've got to save. Yes, yes, yes. But you know, there's more scripture that says you have to give away. Uh, frugality is not the same thing as greed. Uh, saving is not the same thing as stockpiling. Stewardship is not the same thing as living for self. It's just not the same thing. This guy's problem was not that he saved, it's that he saved everything. His surplus that God gave him. He had to figure out what to do with it. It was obviously for me. He saw all of the wealth that God gave and it was for me. He was going to spend it for himself. This is what he says. I've been secured here. I've got all kinds of money for all of my future. I'm all right. You know, it's, we have to be careful. And again, it is a tension. We just want a number. Just give me a number and I'll run with it. There's a tension that we have to wrestle with. But we, we need to know that if, in fact, uh, we decide we're going to apply the scripture on saving, which is a good thing, but we're going to blow this scripture off, which, again, scripture speaks more about giving than it does saving, what we're doing is we're using the very word of God that talks central is Jesus Christ, God so loved that he gave. Jesus, who though he was rich, became poor that we might be rich. We're going to use the very word of God to justify our greed. So we've got to make sure that our interpretation of scripture isn't been too Americanized. So we've got to hold these two in tension. And you might say, well, this is a rich man's problem. I'm sure glad I'm not rich. I mean, this, this guy, I don't, I don't need any bigger barns. I'm telling you, I wish I did, but I, 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 I don't. Well, according to the, the globalissues.org, great, credible webpage, they say this. If you're an American, which I'm trusting you all are, most of you, if you make 34000 a year plus, you are in the upper 1% of the world's population. You understand? 99% of the world and the people in the world are making less money than you if you're making 34,000 plus. The average American requires lives on $55 a day. I mean, that's medical, that's insurance, that's uh, food and shelter, it's, it's everything. Average American, $55 a day. 80% of the world lives on $10 or less a day. Half of the world lives on $2 or less a day. Over 1 billion people live on less than $1 a day. You're struggling to make ends meet, living on $55 a day. Can you imagine living on one? I mean, this 1 billion, these are kids and teenagers. And perhaps they don't have dreams. Maybe they lived in a place where they never had, could have dreams. $1 a day. It's just fascinating that, that those who are in the upper 1% of the world and they claim to follow Christ have given 1.8% last year of their money to help people. It's just an amazing, amazing sort of thing. So we're wealthy. You know what? We're all wealthy. We're going to start. Might not feel like it. Might not like it. But we're all, we're all wealthy. We're all there. Now, this guy's problem was that he didn't understand why he had that wealth. 
Look, look over, and this is the last place we'll turn, but look over to 2 Corinthians, would you? Chapter 9. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Fascinating passage. Because what Paul is doing is Paul's taking up an offering. He's taking up an offering from the church at Corinth for the very Jewish, Christian Jewish church in Jerusalem. Famine is at Jerusalem. Church is on hard times. Kind of like the thing like we're doing with the Philippine stuff. And so Paul's taking up an offering from the Corinthian church for those guys in 8 and 9. And this is what he says in chapter 9, verse 10 and 11. He says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be made rich in every way. Why? So that you can retire and play golf the rest of your life. No, no. So that you can live with all the creaturely comforts. Now, see, see, God doesn't know the other 99%. You're his favorite, and so he's going to give you everything, and you want to know why, so you can enjoy life. What's it say? Why is this so that? So that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result, and don't miss this, in thanksgiving to God. Your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. The church is not just the Peace Corps. Praise God for the Peace Corps. The church is not UNICEF. It's wonderful. We don't just want to give to help, which is very good and noble. But as the body of Christ, in our generosity, people's hearts are turned to God. They are become grateful for Him. They're grateful to Him. Somehow, and I don't know how it works with every individual and all the whole situation, but as we give, as believers give in His name, People's hearts and minds are turned to him. Now, the scary thing is, it seems the reciprocal would also be true. That if they don't, people's hearts are not given to God. There's no thanksgiving that way. There's nothing drawn there. The reason why God has given us wealth, according to the word of God, it's not for us. It's not about us. It's that we might be generous that he would receive thanksgiving. Um, look over, I would say look over at the other page because it's the other page for me, but, but um, verse 6 of chapter 9. He says, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, what's it mean to be a cheerful giver? You know, yay, yay, get to give today. And uh, it, it doesn't, it's not necessarily, it could be outward manifestations of exuberance I get to give. It could be, but according to the text, cheerful giving is juxtaposed to what? Giving reluctantly. Are under compulsion. Whatever cheerful giving is, it is the opposite of having to give reluctantly or under compulsion. You know, like, I need to give the friend. I'm okay, people are watching. Oh, don't. But, but uh, that's giving reluctantly under compulsion. So they're giving, but they're giving reluctantly and under compulsion. But giving joyfully is, is giving grateful that you can participate in God's, God's work. Now you might say, well, I'd like to be joyful and all that when I give, but sometimes it's a struggle. Sometimes it's a battle. Oh, don't you write that much? I don't know. 
It's a battle. The text. Difficulty does not negate joyfulness. I mean, sometimes, tell me if I'm wrong, in obedience, sometimes doesn't God call us to do stuff that's just hard? It's a struggle. You ever call you to confront somebody? Oh, man. Is that easy to do? I hope that's not easy for you to do. That's a hard thing. And so you go into it because it's right. And in your heart, you, there is a joy. You're not going, yeah, I get to confront somebody and get yelled at and call names. This is going to be so good, isn't it? But there's, but there's a joy that you know this is the right thing. You ever, you ever, how about this? Have you ever been called on by God to confess your sin before you were caught? Matter of fact, nobody would ever know that this was a huge weakness for you. But you're going to go to them. You're going to put it on the table. You're going to look like an idiot. You're going to demonstrate incredible weakness. Is that a fun thing? That is not a fun thing. That's a hard thing to do. Difficulty is incredible. But he's called us to confess our sins to one another. Just because it's difficult does not mean it's an opposite of joy. Because I've seen, I've heard people say, well, you know what? Um, God loves a cheerful giver. And because he hasn't given me that cheerfulness and giving, I'll wait for him to give. As soon as he gives me that cheerfulness and joy, then I'll be given. See, but until he does, you know, I better not be disobeying and giving, you know, reluctantly and stuff. So I'm just going to sit on it for a while. Um, How do you become cheerful giver, joyful giver? I, you know, it, it's, it's, it's like if you want to go to Florida. I'm going to follow Nathan here for a minute. Went to Florida. You, go, you want to go to Florida. So you go out and you get in your car and you close the door and you're expecting the moment you close the door for it to be sunny and warm and, and the, with white sand to be. And it's not like that. And you're going, oh, this doesn't work. And so you go in the house and forget it. You're not going anywhere. You, you know as well as I do, you want to get to Florida. It's a journey. And so you've got to get in the car. And pull out of the driveway, and it's still feeling cold, let me tell you. And there's snow all over, and you've got to start driving south, and you're going through Pittsburgh, and you're going through the southern Pennsylvania, and maybe it's still feeling a little bit chilly, and you're going through West Virginia, and you're clipping off some of the Carolinas, maybe swinging over to Tennessee, how are you going to do it? Then you get through Georgia, and you're like forever going through Georgia. But then sooner or later, you get into Florida. And if you keep going, Florida's a long state, you get all the way down to Miami or into Sarasota, you know what? It's warm. Now, while you're driving, what's happening? slowly, it's becoming just a little bit more warm, isn't it? Just a little bit more warm. It's a little bit nicer. It's a little bit nicer. If you get on the journey, and you say, boy, it's a battle struggle, but I'm going to be obedient. You know what? In time, that obedience in time gets warmer. And the joy kindles. And the joy gets stronger. And the joy builds. But to start off and say, unless I've got this happy exuberance, immediately it's not a battle. We don't do anything else that way. If something's a battle, but still I know what's right, you go for what's right regardless. Now, um, you know, Paul was talking about uh, an offering here. And I started thinking this week, I thought, you know, people, if you didn't grow up in the church, I grew up in the church, you might not understand how we do offerings and stuff. And we're working on the online giving thing. One of these days we'll get up in the 21st century and we'll let you all know when that happens. But right now the primary way we give is through the offering plate and a special tool called the offering envelope. I got these when I was a little kid. This was fun. I didn't do anything with them. I played with them and stuff. But it was fun because I had my own offering envelopes. They got a new rendition coming out for 2014. I'm told it's in color. It looks really cool. Uh, they don't have that yet though. But this is what we've got right now. You got some in the pew rack in front of you. And the way this works is you look at, there's seven different categories that you can give to money to FAC. First one is general fund. That is our main stream. 
Okay, I mean, that is everything from electricity to salaries to snow removal to funding Awana to, I mean, that's, that's, that's almost everything. That's how we operate. That's the main deal. But then you can also give to the building fund. This building, I think, was opened in 2001. We owe about a million bucks left on it, I think. Uh, the mortgage is being paid down and much, gr- much greater than it, than just the mortgage payment. I think they're paying like 5,000 extra on it each, each month because people, you guys have written down building fund, special amount of money, so that we can pay that down. Next line is the benevolent fund. From time to time, we have people who come across hard times in the church, right? We've been, I've been there, you've been there. And uh, you need rent or to eat or there's some medical thing. That's where this com- benevolence, that's where we take care of that, that pile of money. Then we've got the Great Commission. Great Commission is to our missionary endeavor what... General Fund is to the local church. All the Alliance churches get together, pool their money so we can send forth missionaries. That's the Great Commission Fund. Then we've got short-term missions. We've got parachurch, Erie City Mission, some of the parachurch organizations that we uh, take care of or help with, uh, and then other. So you, that's how you would do that. And then you put your thingy in the offering plate, and, and, and you see the suits, take it out the door, and you go, I wonder where they're going with that. Maybe they're going to the casino. I don't know where they're going with that. I mean, how do I know what happened? They send me a paper. This, but I don't know where. And that's what was going on here in Corinth. Because Paul said we're going to take a big offering for the church in Jerusalem. And the Corinthians started going, "Yeah, you're going to give you money. You're going to walk out of town with all of our money. How do we know you? Maybe you're going to go to the French Riviera. So maybe you're going to get on a Carnival cruise ship. How do we know where you're going with this, Paul? And so Paul, in chapter eight, verse sixteen, he says this. Very conscious of their, their concerns. He says, I thank God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm on his own initiative. And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. There's a little, not sure who that is. Maybe that's Peter. We're not sure. Uh, what is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering which we administer in order to honor the Lord. The Lord. You see what he's, he's saying? You all need to know that you're not just giving me this money. There are people that you voted on that will help me take the offering. People of high integrity. People that you know. People that all the churches know. So this is not a fly. I'm not just walking off with your cash. And then he says, and this is great verses, 20 and 21. He says, we want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. For we're taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. We're going to make sure that we administer this thing right so that nobody can criticize us. So nobody can accuse us of skimming off the time. And, and so the, your, your offerings go out the door. What happens to them? Again, I'm just, if you're not on the really inside of the church, you, you, you kind of, a lot of stuff happens that you're not aware of. So let me, let me clue you in with the, the church secrets. What happens is multiple ushers, not just one guy, see you all later, multiple ushers take it and secure the offering. Then later on, we've got four counters, they call them, who will come to the church. Now we've got 24 counters. And they work rotationally. They'll be here every four to six weeks. And when they come, they'll pair up, but always with a different person. And they will count the offering and enter it into the, the computer. And that's why at the end of the year, you can get a statement, a little receipt thing that says that you gave X number of dollars and the IRS is happy. You get your receipt. 
That's part A. Then what happens is what had already been going on is the, the folk had been put together a budget. And that's put together over many months, and it's, it's an arduous situation. It goes through lots of eyes and several desks and several committees and all the staff. And so it's just put together. And then finally, each staff person, uh, each uh, the department head, gets their budget. And they can spend their budget to make sure their ministry works. Jelana needs awards for a one or whatever. Yeah, she can... But you always have to have a receipt. If you don't have a receipt, then Jelana just bought those awards out of her own pocket. You have to have the receipt. And if ever you want to spend more than 200 bucks, you've got to get prior approval before you go spend the money. And that our, our finance office is comprised of Julie Darden, who's our CPA part-time, Lynn Gert, who's been here a long time, high integrity and incredible, incredibly meticulous. In how, she's the type of person you want running the books, and our executive director. And they're constantly looking at, at the uh, expenditures and what's going out and how's it. Then what Julie does, our CPA, is each month she makes a very detailed uh, report and gives it to our finance committee. Now, you don't hear about the finance committee. These guys are like the Illuminati. You know, they're under the radar. No one knows about them. But they hold the, the, the purse strings for this place. They, they keep us from getting in trouble with the law. They're, and what they do is they comb over those reports, and they check out the cash flow, and they check out trends, and they look at the offering, and they look at, at all of the expenses that are coming and going. They watch these things like a hawk. On, on our, our finance team, just so you know, we've got Norm Adams, who's our church treasurer, who ran major financial projects for DuPont when he was there. You've got Dave Bell, elder, former treasurer. You've got Julie Darden, who's our CPA. You've got Valerie Kuntz, who is a lawyer dealing with estate planning. You've got Phil Dalmadaglia, who is not, doesn't, he doesn't just lead financial peace, by the way, if you come to that, but he also is a certified accountant. You've got Dave Maley and Dan Maley, former treasurers, former elders. That team is packed with integrity. That team is packed with skill. I have this feeling that if President Obama knew of these guys, he'd call them in. They might be able to straighten out our country. They probably could. We are blessed to have these guys. And this is what these guys have to do. This is, their, this is the part of their job. On one hand, they are, uh, tr- we want to have faith. We want to trust God. We want to take some risk-calculated initiatives for the kingdom of God. On the same hand, we've got to be wise. We've got to not sink our church. We've got to make sure that we are faithful to the people. And so they are wrestling with that on a regular basis. Then what these guys do is each month... And they, they put out a report for the governing board. And the, so the board of elders goes through that. And they deal with the proposals. And then, at the end of each year, an independent uh, auditing firm comes in and looks at the whole thing to make sure we're okay. I can say the church, this church goes to great pains to make sure that we're okay. And we ought to. There's so much stuff going on out there. The last thing we want is to have Christ's name, his reputation, damaged because we didn't handle things the way we were supposed to. Will every single penny always be spent the way everybody likes it? Probably not. But you've got to know there's a bunch of eyes looking over the shoulder of everybody who spends anything. Now, you, you might think, okay, well, that's, I'm glad. That's cool. I'm glad you're doing that. But you need to know that's... I don't give a whole lot, and the reason why I don't is not necessarily because of the stewardship thing. Maybe it's, it's just the opposite. Because another enemy of, of generosity is really bankruptcy. And they're saying, I just don't have, you don't understand. 
right now, man. It's not like bigger barns. It's like no barns. It's like it's like it's like they took my barns away, and I owe people's other barns, and and I am just in a hole right now. And life is hard. And you've been there. They're between jobs or or whatever else. Things are just tough. We made some dumb decisions. Crazy. Uh, things in the government or in the, the, the market have happened and they just cripple. I'm just in a mess right now. Well, what do I do? Uh, let me encourage you along these lines. Financial Peace University. Uh, again, I've been through it twice. I think it's the kind of thing everyone needs to go through. Even if you're not really in a mess, you're just looking for, for what does God's word say. Uh, it's a multiple week class going to be offered on Sunday morning that will help you see money through God's eyes and give you very practical, much more than we've been able to in the time we've had, very practical ways and how to, to deal with it. And if you're in a hole, it will help you. If you apply what they say, get out of the hole and honor God with what you have. Was it uh, Alfred Nobel? It was a Swedish... Hello. Alfred Nobel was a Swedish chemist. Alfred Nobel invented dynamite. And in 1888, his brother died, uh, but the newspapers thought it was him. And so they, they wrote all of his legacy obituary stuff. And so you can imagine this guy's, uh, wow, when he wakes up in the morning, and there's all this stuff. He died. Wow, I died. This is amazing. And he starts reading, though, about his legacy. And he didn't know what people thought of him until he starts reading this stuff. Dr. Death is dead. And the articles just uh, berated him for inventing that which kills so many people, which destroys so many lives. And he got done reading his obituary, saying, I can't believe this is how I am going to be remembered. Now, he had a benefit that most of us don't. We don't get to read our obituary before we, before we die. But if someone was to write your obituary... Regarding finances, what would they say? What would they say? This person was so tight. This person was so greedy. This person was so careless. What would they say? This person honored God and was generous. Well, what Nobel decided is, I mean, he said, man, I've got to correct this. I've got some time left. I've got to correct this. And so when he did finally die, he left eight to nine million dollars to be given out as awards to those whose work most helped humanity. And these are the Nobel Peace Prizes from this, this guy because he saw his obituary and decided to rewrite it. We have that legacy instead. Right now, between now and the time we die, we have got the ability to write our own obituary. What people will say because of the truth on this area. So let me ask you, what are you doing to write it?